Okay. Consciousness. This passage I'd just like to go over very briefly. Is that the Buddha here is talking about consciousness exhibiting growth, increase, and prol- proliferation. And he gives the analogy of putting a seed in soil and moistening it. And then he goes down, look toward the end of that page where it starts with the paragraph. It says, like the earth property monks is how the four standing spots for consciousness should be seen. Okay, these are form, feeling, perception, fabrication. That's like the earth that you put the seed in. The liquid property is, or the water that would water the seed is delight and passion. And the five means of propagation, which would be seeds, etc., would be consciousness together with its nutriment. Okay, and so if you take consciousness, taking a stance attached to form, supported by form as its object, established on form, watered with delight, it would exhibit growth, increase, and proliferation, and the same with the other aggregates. Now, if you can abandon passion for these, these, these five aggregates, then with the abandoning of passion, the support is cut off. Again, we're talking about consciousness. Here, an example of what we had just now. If you don't have any passion for a particular form, you see it, and your consciousness is not going to proliferate around it. You know, the desire wouldn't proliferate, the aversion, whatever. It just, it just kind of goes right past, because you you're not there with any passion toward it. This is why we're working on this passion for the five aggregates. Because these are the things that, the, that your awareness lands on and then proliferates with. Okay, Consciousness, thus, and then go down to the, the bottom. Say, if the passion for the property of form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, or consciousness is abandoned, then owing, owing to the abandoning of passion, the support is cut off. There's no base for consciousness. Consciousness, thus unestablished, not proliferating, not performing any function, is released. Okay, this is an analogy. This is, this is one of the ways they have of describing awakening. Your consciousness is not established anywhere. And that's the element of passion that causes you to get established to begin with. Because passion is what underlies the intention that would connect these things. Okay, when consciousness is released, it is steady. When it's steady, it's contented. When it's contented, it's not agitated. And not agitated, you're totally unbound. Okay, this is how we gain awakening. By abandoning the passion that gets us involved in things, involved in creating the present moment. Okay. Then passage 14 gives an analogy. This is one of my favorite analogies in the Pali Canon. Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south, or the east. Okay. When the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? on the western, lo- western wall. And if there's no western wall, where does it land? It lands on the ground. And if there's no ground, where does it land? On the water. If there's no water, where does it land? It doesn't land. In other words, you take away the support, you take away the passion for these things, and your consciousness doesn't land on things and grow. Now, this doesn't mean there's no consciousness. I mean, look at the analogy. Of this. You've still got the ray of sun. Simply, it's not bouncing off of anything anymore. He says, in the same way, when there's no passion for the nutriment of physical food, contact, intellectual intention, or consciousness, where there's no delight, no craving, then consciousness doesn't land there or grow. And again, there's a similar process. No, no renewed being. So the Buddha's not saying here that you know, awakening would mean the ending of any kind of consciousness at all. But it would be a consciousness that's unestablished. It's not fastened on anything. It's not taking anything on. It's not proliferating anything anymore. And we're really good proliferators. 
This is what we've been doing all of our lives. It's just making issues where they don't need to be made. Creating things when they don't need to be created. Simply because we can. It's like giving a child a, you know, a toy. I have a friend who's a carpenter and he gave his son a little hammer. And all of a sudden his son was hammering everything in the house. I mean, it's, it's, once you've got that tool, whether it's good or not, that's, that's what you do with it. You know? So, but now we get to name. And if nothing else, I want to get through name today, okay? Once you've got name understood, you've got everything else understood as well, okay? Okay, intention. Intention is the karma. Intending what you would do karma by way of body, speech, and intellect. Passage 15. Okay, this is where karma comes in. You know, we, we all know that karma is one of the big teachings. It come, this is the place where it comes into dependent core arising under the factor of name. And then next there is karma that is dark with dark result, karma that is bright with bright result, karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result, and karma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the ending of karma. Now in this, the, full, the full version of the sutta, the Buddha talks about karma that is bright so dark with dark result is killing, stealing, having illicit sex, lying, taking intoxicants. Can you do this and it's unskillful, it's going to lead to problems down the line. Karma that's bright with bright result is when you abstain from unskillful actions. Karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result is when you sometimes abstain and sometimes don't. <laughs> this is where most of us are. And then the karma that is neither dark nor bright, leading to the end of karma, that's, here it is explained as the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, this is where the path to practice comes in as well. It's the intention element of name. As you focus on following this path, this is how the path cuts through things, right here at this element of intention. For attention, here's an example. The Buddha gives two examples of appropriate and inappropriate attention. Look at the second paragraph in passage 17. This is how a person attends inappropriately. You, you ask all these questions. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else he's inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. This is the real kicker here. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being come from? Where is it bound? These are all inappropriate questions. Why? Because one of six kinds of view will arise in you. Either the view I have a self arises in you as true and established, or the view that I have no self is true and established. Okay, notice that? The idea I have no self is still, you know, affected the views here. The view that it is precisely by means of self that I perceive self, or it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self, or it's precisely by means of not self that I perceive self. Now, that last one is, is, is an important one. Some people say, well, you can't really see yourself, but you can, you can infer the fact that you have a self from the way it relates to other experiences. But the Buddha is saying here, okay, that's, a, that's, that's another thicket of views. 
Or you have a view like this, this very self of mind, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is the self of mind that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change and will endure as long as eternity. This is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. <laughs> if you ever took a college philosophy course, you know what they're talking about. Right? <laughs> Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. He's not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. Now, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, who has regard for the noble ones, etc., attends appropriately that this is stress, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. As you attend appropriately in this way, three fetters are abandoned. Identity view, doubt, and grasping at precepts and practices. Okay, this is an example of appropriate attention. In other words, you focus on things that really do lead to an end of suffering, as opposed to... As opposed to a, focusing on questions that would carry you away. So this gets back again to seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. This is where the factor of intent, excuse me, factor of attention relates to the question of ignorance. If you're operating on inappropriate attention, you're operating on ignorance. Appropriate attention is applying knowledge of the Four Noble Truths to your present experience which we described earlier. Okay. Okay, the next passage, which is quite long, which is a, is a contemplation of the different elements that which come under form. Now, I would like to take just one of these elements as an example. Let's take the earth element, earth property. The purpose of this analysis is to depersonalize your experience of the body. Back in the time of the Buddha, they looked at the world in terms of four elements or four properties, both in the body and outside. And by seeing that you've got the same properties, physical properties inside your body as you have outside of the body, helps to depersonalize your experience of the body. You reflect on that. You've got calcium in your bones. You've got other elements in your body. And you realize, this is no different from other elements out there. And so when someone hits you, they're hitting the calcium and they're hitting the carbon. (laughs) You think in those ways, it helps make it easier to to put up with, as we see, unfriendly people. And you don't take it all so personally. Because again, it's, it's a way of learning to disidentify with the body. And this doesn't mean you're putting the body into denial. It's just not, you're not saying, this is me. When somebody hits you, you don't say they're hitting me. They're just hitting the body. Just that change in perception would really change your reaction. There's a, a sutta where there's a monk who's going to go off into a, a, a wild area of India. And he comes to say goodbye to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, where are you going? And he tells him. And the Buddha says, I hear the people there are really rough and uncivilized. What are you going to do if they yell at you? He says, well, I'm going to think these people are very good and they're not hitting me. What if they hit you? These people are very good. They're not throwing stones at me. What if they throw stones at you? See, these people are very good. They're not stabbing me. What if they stab you? See, these people are very good. They're not killing me. 
What if they kill you? At least my death wasn't a suicide. <laughs> so, see, see what a change in perception can do. Okay, first you've got the earth property, and it's, you just go through, earth property can be internal or external. So you've got the internal earth property, which are the parts of the body. Now, both the internal earth property and the external earth property are simply earth property. And that should be seen as it actually is, with right discernment. This is not mine, this is not me, this is not myself. When one sees it thus as it actually is, with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the earth property and makes the mind dispassionate towards the earth property. Another way of seeing thing as it actually is can also be translated as it has become. I mean, looking at kind of the raw material, the body simply as raw material before you put a lot of your preconceived notions on it. External liquid property is provoked. In other words, there's a flood. And at that time, the external earth property vanishes. So even in the external earth property, so a vast inconstancy will be discerned, destructibility will be discerned, a tendency to decay will be discerned, changeability will be discerned, then what of this short-lasting body sustained by clinging is I or mine or what I am? It has here only a no. You look here for anything that would be lasting enough. And even look at the earth outside. The earth outside changes so much and can change so drastically. What are you going to say about this little body you've got? Of course it's going to change very quickly. So is there anything worthy of being claimed as me or mine? And the answer is no. Just, I like to hear. It has here only a no. You say, my body. And the body says, no. <laughs> you say, I've been caring for you and feeding you. And the body says, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to go. Now, if other people insult, malign, exasperate, and harass a monk who has discerned this, he discerns that a painful feeling has borne, you know, your contact has arisen within me. In other words, okay, they're yelling at me, just say, a painful feeling has arisen within me. It changes the perception, it changes the feeling tone. And then it's dependent, not independent. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact, okay, the contact at the body. You see that contact is inconstant, feeling is inconstant, perception is inconstant, consciousness is inconstant. This mind with the earth property as its object, support, leaps up, grows confident and steadfast and released. And you release yourself from any of the narratives that would be built around the fact that these people are yelling at you. Just look at this, this, this they're yelling at this body, but what's this body? This body is just earth, you know? If you can think that way, it helps. And if other people attack the monk in ways that are undesirable, displeasing, and disagreeable, through contact with fists, contact with stones, with sticks, or with knives, the monk discerns that this body is of such a nature that contacts with fists come. <laughs> contacts with stones come. <laughs> in other words, you don't take it personally. You say, I wanted this body, but look, what I, you know, look at the fine print in the contract. Contacts with sticks and contacts with knives come. Now here... And the Blessed One has said in his exhortation of the simile of the saw, monks, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he among you who let his heart get angered even at that would not be doing my bidding. So my persistence will be aroused and untiring, my mindfulness established and unconfused, my body calm and unaroused, my mind centered and unified. And now let contact with fists come to this body, stone sticks, and lives come to this body, for this is how the Buddha's bidding is done. Sounds pretty challenging, doesn't it? But think about it, okay, if you're in a situation like that and okay, people are beating up on you and you have no chance of fighting them off, 
this is the best way to deal with it. So I'm just not going to let my mind get entangled. And use your meditation at that time. Hmm? With flies and bugs, yes. These, this, this body is of a nature that flies and bugs will land on it. <laughs> Think that when you're meditating out under the avocado trees. And so if you, if, you know, if the Buddha wants you to be able to withstand even attacks from bandits, you know, what's this little bit of a fly or a bug that's got you so upset? Or you go home and somebody yells at you. You say, okay, well, this is just this body they're yelling at. It's impersonal. Okay, again, you can see that this is a, this is a type of reflection that helps develop dispassion. Also helps get you out of a lot of bad karma in the way that you normally react to disagreeable situations. Okay. And if in the monk recollecting the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in this way, equanimity based on what is skillful is not established, he feels apprehensive at that and gives rise to a sense of urgency. It is a loss for me, not a gain. Ill-gotten for me, not well-gotten, that when I recollect the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in this way, equanimity based on what is skillful is not established within me. Just as when a daughter-in-law and seeing her father-in-law feels apprehensive... <laughs> And gives rise to a sense of urgency to please him. Boy, that tells you a lot about Indian sociology, doesn't it? (laughs) In the same way, if you can't develop a sense of equanimity in the midst of difficult situations, okay, this is something that's got to be worked on. But if the monk, this is the first full paragraph on page 11. But if in the monk, recollecting the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha in this way, equanimity based on what is skillful is established, then he's gratified at that, and even to this extent, friends, the monk has accomplished a great deal. Okay. And then there's a similar reflection for the other elements as well. So you can see what this analysis of the body into physical properties is all about. It helps to depersonalize a lot of the things in your experience that normally if you took them too personally, you would react in ways that would be unskillful. In other words, if you lay claim to this as your territory, then of course there's going to be invasions on your territory. Say, okay, well this doesn't have to be mine. This can just be physical. I mean, it already is physical elements. It already does belong to the physical world. I was the one who came in and laid claim, which means that I can also let go. This body is not my true nature. It's just something that I've laid claim to, but I can let it go if I find that it's causing unskillful metal mental reactions. Does anyone have any comment on that? So who is the, in quotes, I that has laid claim to the body? Don't ask. You, you said you've just come in and laid claim to yeah. the body. Mm-hmm. I've come in and laid claim to okay, the body. There's the perception and there's the consciousness and the fabrication that act together laid claim. That combination makes I. Makes an I. Thinks it's I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, the Buddha never said there is no self. He never said there was a self. He looks at the process of I making and my making as a kind of karma. So it's this process of fabrication, feeling, perception, directed thought, evaluation. This is what creates the sense of I. It seems to me that this would be the appropriate meditation or work to do if you think you're about to die. In order to get equanimity in, in the face of the body dying, <coughs> that when you just lay claim to it, so you just as well not. not. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, the thing is, we don't know exactly when we're going to die, so it's good to practice. Yeah, but you know, when you get pretty old, then you get an idea. Yes, <laughs> it's coming closer. <laughs> no, this is, I mean, you even have little novices contemplating this stuff in, in Thailand. Because even little novices can die. You know? So it's a good reflection. Yeah, but if you're a little novice, it doesn't like feel imminent. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if enough decades go by, it kind of feels like it's coming, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, plow on through sense, media, contact, and feeling. We may actually get somewhere. <laughs> okay. Okay, dependent on eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as a requisite condition, excuse me, condition there is feeling. Okay, notice, notice, up to this point, this is all done in impersonal terms. There's I, there's forms, there's I consciousness arising, the meeting of the three is contact, with contact as requisite condition, there is feeling. Okay, then it comes, what one feels, one perceives. Okay, here comes the, the person identifying around the feeling. What one feels, one perceives. You put labels on. What one perceives, one thinks about. Okay, the directed thought. One th- one thinks about, one complicates. <laughs> the word here is papancha, which can also be translated as proliferation. <laughs> we proliferate. Based on what a person complicates, the perceptions and categories of complication assail him or her with regard to past, present, and future forms cognizable by the eye. Similarly with other sense media. Okay, what you've got first is impersonal, is stated in personal terms. Then you become the agent, perceiving, labeling, and thinking about things. And then you become the victim of your thoughts. And they talk about the perceptions and categories of complication. There's another passage where the Buddha said that these perceptions and categories of complications come from one basic thought, which is, I am the thinker. Once you identify yourself as who's doing all this thinking, okay, that's when you start complicating things. And in the context of this particular sutta, the Buddha is talking about why people get into conflict. You start complicating things. You have your sense of me, which then you have to lay claim to certain things because this knee needs to be fed. And then, of course, as you're laying claim to things, other things are going to come and lay claim to those things. Other beings are going to lay claim to those things. And that's how we get into conflict. So it starts, starts out impersonally, but as soon as you get this idea of the agent and the victim involved, then things get, that get messy. Okay, a lot, a lot of this being victimized is you get victimized by your craving. Let's look a little bit more into craving. There are five strands of sensuality. Remember, there are three kinds of craving that the Buddha talked about. There's sensual craving, becoming craving, and then non-becoming craving. In passage number 20... <coughs> The Buddha is making the point that the sensuality here is not the objects that we're craving. It's our passion for our resolves. That's our sensuality. That's our gamma, to use the Pali term. Passion for our resolves. In other words, we get passionate about your intention, intentions. Passionate about what you want out of things. 
And again, it's not so much the objects of your passion that are the problem, it's the fact that you're, la- you're attached to you, the idea of passion. You like being passionate, you like getting involved with things. Last weekend, I was, when I was at the DPP, someone raised, when this issue of dispassion came up, and someone said, you know, what is this with this Dharma practice? The only thing we're allowed to have passion for is Dharma. <laughs> and made it sound like you know, everybody's being fed pablum. <laughs> and I think the solution for that attitude is when you realize that what does it mean to be passionate for the Dharma? It doesn't mean being passionate for what the, the Buddha taught. It means being passionate for being skillful in everything you do. Wanting to do it that way. So you're allowed to channel your passion into the path as opposed to channeling it into sensual desire. Okay, once you can learn to pass, channel your passion in that direction, okay, it says here, the very last line, the passion for his resolves is the man's sensuality. The beauties remain as they are in the world, while the wise, in this regard, subdue their desire. Okay, so the Buddha says, it's not that you don't see that the world has beautiful things anymore, it's just that your thirst and hunger for them passes away. Your, your desire to hunger after them passes away. Now, the other two forms of craving are craving, becoming craving and non-becoming craving. Passages 21 and 22 illustrate this a little bit. Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, this word, becoming, becoming, to what extent is there becoming? And the Buddha says, if there were no karma ripening the property of sensuality, then would sensual becoming be discerned? And Ananda says, no. The Buddha says, thus, karma is the field, consciousness, the seed. Okay, here we've got some more seed imagery. And craving the moisture. In this case, in the, other, in the other cases, it was the aggregates were the field. In this case, it's karma is the field. Consciousness is the seed and craving the moisture. The intention and determination of living beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving is established in or tuned to a lower property. Thus, there is the production of renewed becoming in the future. In other words, it's your karma that creates these worlds that you then go into. And they use the word tuned to here in the same way that you would tune an instrument. And you think about think about for the possibility of rebirth for a minute, okay? Okay. If you are the sort of person who's really fascinated and obsessed by sensual stuff, you're tuned into that level of reality, and so it's natural that when you die, that's where you're going to go. There's that wonderful sutta in, in, in the Manjim about this monk who decides that by practicing austerities of living like a dog, then he's going to get earn the right to become a, a deva. And he and his friend go to see the Buddha and, the, and his friend says, you know, this, and, and the guy kind of curls up on the ground, acts like a dog. And the friend asks the Buddha, says, this friend of mine here has this austere practice that by subjecting himself to this torture and acting like a dog and developing the mind of a dog and developing the attitude of a dog, he's going to get reborn as a deva. Now, what do you think? And the Buddha says, don't ask. <laughs> And so he asked him three times, and you know, there's the tradition. You ask it three times, it says, you really seriously want to know. And the Buddha says, well, if you develop the attitude of a dog and the manner of a dog and the mind of a dog, and, and et cetera, et cetera, of a dog, you will be born in the company of dogs. <laughs> you kind of tune your mind in there. So think about this. Where your intentions are, that's what's going to take you there. So, so you can be reborn in the sensual world, which they say is a lower property. And then there are the more refined properties of form becoming and formless becoming. You create the potential for these worlds. You tune into them 
by the types of actions and by the types of concerns that you really focus on. So then there's becoming, and then the next passage, overcome by two viewpoints, some human and divine beings adhere, other human and divine beings slip right past, while those with vision see. How do some adhere? Human and divine beings enjoy becoming, delight in becoming, are satisfied with becoming. When the Dharma is being taught for the sake of the cessation of becoming, their minds do not take to it, are not calmed by it, do not settle on it, or become resolved on it. This is how some adhere. So you stick to the idea that you still want to create more worlds. You know, I've been a human being, let's try being a deva. But what you see an awful lot in Thailand is, okay, we're sick and tired of being peasants. We want to be rich people at least once before we go to nirvana. There's that, I want to create this world. And then, of course, what happens? You become a rich person, and what happens? You, you can't trust your friends. <laughs> you always wonder if they're going to take your money from you. You do stupid things and get into, into the newspapers. I mean, all kinds of things happen. And people, when they get rich, you know. Which are not really worth it. Okay, so, but you're clinging. We're constantly trying to create new things, new worlds. How do some slip right past? Some feeling horrified, humiliated, and disgusted with that very becoming, relish non-becoming. And this is, this is our idea. When this self, at the breakup of the body after death, perishes and destroyed and does not exist after death, that is peaceful, that is exquisite, that is sufficiency. In other words, you really want to be annihilated. That's craving for non-becoming. And how do those with vision see? Well, how, what's, what's, okay, if you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, how do you get out? And the answer is, how do those with vision see? There's the case where a monk sees what has come into being as what has come into being. In other words, seeing the raw material of the present moment as they arrive without any input from you. Because for most of us, as we get in, in, engaged in the present moment, there's always a push to the future. That's what becoming is all about. You, know, you, take, you take this present moment because you think, okay, what can I do with this present moment? Where is this going to take me? Perhaps you came here today thinking, I would come to this talk because I will learn something that I can then use in my life. Because there's a purpose in your being here. There's a purpose in our eating. There's a purpose in our sleep. There's everything we do, there's a purpose leading to something further and further and further on in the, in the future. Now, that it can either be leading on to more becoming, or you say, well, I want to do something, I want to end my life, I want to commit suicide. Well, that's craving for non-becoming. But then again, that's an activity that has a purpose that's taking you in a very bad direction. How do those with vision see? You see what is coming to being as what is coming to being. Instead of looking at things in terms of where they're going to take you, you look at what do we have right here, right now. What's the raw material of this experience? And when you start looking at the raw material, seeing what has come into being as come into being, you practice for disenchantment with what has come into being, dispassion toward, toward it, cessation. I mean, it's like seeing that you're in the process of building a house, and then you turn around and you look, what are you building this house out of? Well, it's, it's frozen meat. And you begin to realize, okay, even if I build a beautiful house, it's all going to decay. And then you develop dispassion for the process of keeping on building the house, because the raw materials are the sort of thing that you can't really develop true passion for. So that very quickly is becoming and non-becoming. The very last part of this from the Itipitaka uh, 49, um, a practice for disenchantment with what has come into being, dispassion towards what has come into being, 
cessation of what has come into being. So what is the cessation, the cessation of? Okay, it's whatever. Suppose it's a state of jhana that you've been in, involved in creating and keeping going. And then you begin to see even this jhana is made out of the aggregates. And there's a form, there's a feeling. These are all in constant. And we're looking at the raw material here. So you're deconstructing the fabrications. Yeah. You're unfabricating the fabrications. You're deconstructing it, yeah. Right. And then, as we said, even if you get, if you take the jhana down into the realm of the five aggregates, realize that even those have an intentional element, you know, prior to your making them into something else. And so that's when you allow the cessation, when you stop that intentional involvement. Thank you. Okay, okay. we're going to end with clinging. Because once you've got clinging, then you've got the whole mess <laughs> follows on. <laughs> And as we said earlier, there are four kinds of clinging. There's sensuality clinging, view clinging, precept and practice clinging, and doctrines of the self clinging. Okay. Sensuality clinging. This particular passage doesn't require a lot of explanation. As the Buddha at one point says, if you want to understand something, you have to understand how it arises, how it passes away what its allure is and what its drawbacks are, and then how to escape from it. For instance, when you're dealing with anger, you may know the drawbacks, but if you don't see the allure of anger, you're not going to be able to let go of it. In other words, you don't understand why you keep liking to do this. But if you start seeing, okay, what do I get out of this anger? I get a real rush what I really like. And you say, well, is it worth it? You start comparing the allure with the drawbacks, and you see that you know, the drawbacks way out, outweigh the, the allure. Then you're motivated to really do something about it. Okay, so first, in the terms of sensuality, the Buddha starts with seeing the allure of sensuality, excuse me, which is the pleasure and happiness that rise in dependence on the five strands of sensuality. That's the allure. Pretty short, isn't it? About three lines. <laughs> What's the drawback of sensuality? It goes on for a page and a half. Okay. There's a case where, on account of the occupation by which a clansman makes a living, whether checking or accounting or calculating or plowing or trading or cattle tending or archery, or as a king's man or whatever the occupation may be, he faces cold, he faces heat, being harassed by mosquitoes and flies, wind and sun and creeping things, dying from hunger and thirst. Okay, that's one of the drawbacks of sensuality. If you gain no wealth while thus working and striving and making an effort, you sorrow, grieve and lament. You beat your breast, become distraught. My work is in vain. My efforts are fruitless. That's another drawback of sensuality. If you do gain wealth while thus working and striving and making effort, you experience pain and distress in protecting it. How will neither kings nor thieves... Isn't this great? Buddha always puts kings and thieves right next to each other. <laughs> How will neither kings nor thieves make off with my property, nor fire burn it, nor water sweep it away, nor hateful heirs make off with it? <laughs> And as he thus guards and watches over his property, kings or thieves make off with it, or fire burns it, or water sweeps it away, or hateful heirs make off with it. <laughs> and so he sorrows and grieves and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. What was mine is no more. You get the picture, right? Okay. With sensuality for the reason, sensuality for the source, sensuality for the cause, the reason being simple is sensuality. The kings quarrel with kings, nobles with nobles, priests with priests, householders with householders, mother with child, child with mother. Father with child, child with father, brother with brother, sister with sister, brother with sister, sister with brother, friend with friend. (laughs) 
And then in their quarrels, brawls, and disputes, they attack one another with fists or with clods or with sticks or with knives so that they incur death or deadly pain. And then... These these are great passages. This was sensuality for the reason that men taking swords and shields and buckling on bows and quivers charge into battle massed in double array while arrows and spears are flying and swords are flashing and there they are wounded by arrows and spears and their heads are cut off by swords. I love this. Their heads are cut off by swords so they endure death or deadly pain. Now, wait a minute. It is with sensuality for the reason that men taking swords and shields and buckling on bows and quivers charge slippery bastions while arrows and spears are flying and swords are flashing and there they are splashed with boiling cow dung. <laughs> Can you imagine whoever thought that one up? <laughs> yeah. They crush under heavy weights and their heads are cut off by swords. They endure death, incur death or deadly pain. There's sensuality for the reason, sensuality for the source that men break into windows, seize plunder, commit burglary, ambush highways, commit adultery, and when they are captured, kings have them tortured in many ways. They flog them with whips, beat them with canes, beat them with clubs. They cut off their hands, cut off their feet, cut off their hands and feet. Cut off their ears, cut off their noses, cut off their ears and noses. They subject them to many graphic tortures, which I didn't... <laughs> I didn't have... And they have them splashed with boiling oil, devoured by dogs, impaled alive on stakes. And it still hasn't stopped, has it? Okay. You get the picture. Okay. That's the drawback of sensuality. <laughs> well, think about it. You know, they, I mean, apparently the army has already done computer programs to figure out how many terrorist attacks it's going to take for a society to break down. And apparently it doesn't take that many. You, know, you could cut off the electricity someplace, blow up a, a nuclear reactor someplace else. After a while, American society would break down. Can you imagine what life would be like? All these wonderful human beings that with who we are so nicely interconnected. What we would do to each other. So if you're clinging to sensuality, that's, that gets, it gets pretty, pretty raw. People start fighting in all kinds of ways. It's happening now, but it can get even worse. Yeah. So this is why we want to look at the drawbacks of sensuality. So this sensuality is wonderful as long as your sensual pleasures get met pretty easily. But when they're not getting met, then it becomes this big gaping hole. And people start doing things to each other that they would never, otherwise never even think of doing. So that's the drawback of sensual clinging. 